0: Welcome, everyone, to the F Word Conversations on Faith. I am Pastor Matt Miofsky, your host, and I can't believe it, it's week three of this new show. And I am going to introduce something new today. I really want to hear from you. You know, when I conceived the show, I wanted it to be uh, time f- a time for me to hear from you and answer questions that are on your mind. And so I'm going to set up an email account, Word at gatheringnow.org. And I want you to email me questions. They can be questions about faith, about theology, about life. And I'm going to take some time at the end of every show, kind of a mailbag. I know that's maybe old-fashioned, but a mailbag of sorts where I take some of your questions, some of your comments, and I want to answer them. So you can email me at the F word, just the letter F, the F word at gatheringnow.org. I will read those every week. We will pick a few questions and we will talk about them at the end of every show. Okay, I want to start today with the events from January 6th in our nation's capital and and the subsequent fallout from those events. I know that's been on a lot of your minds. And some of you may be wondering, you know, why in the world is a pastor going to talk about politics? And in fact, some of you think we should not be mixing faith with politics at all. And I want to speak to that for just a minute because I, I think that's an important maybe misunderstanding. I think it's really important that people of faith do talk about politics. Uh, why? Well, first, because, I mean, the Christian faith, at least, is inherently political. Not partisan, but political. And What I mean by that is faith is not just about what happens in our spiritual lives. Like, it's not just about our relationship with God. But it's also about how we treat each other. Of course, we know this. Jesus says, love the Lord your God but also love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we start talking about what it means to love our neighbor, how we ought to be treating one another, what we ought to be doing for one another, these are political questions. Because politics, most fundamentally, is sort of how are we going to treat and live with each other. So that's the first reason why I think it's important for people of faith to, to be willing to be political. But second, and this is really important, I think, for the time we're living in now, it's because faith, especially Christian faith, has become increasingly partisan over the years. And it's not something that I think has been a good move on the part of Christians. In fact, my guest today for the majority of the show is going to be Dr. Marie Griffith from the John Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University. And I'm going to be talking with her about a question that I get all the time as a pastor, especially from a lot of you non-Christians or skeptics, those outside the church. And they look at this and they say, you know, when it comes to politics, particularly right now and our, our president how can so many christians support a president who seems well so unchristian to a lot of people who are looking and we're going to talk about that and, and i want to talk more broadly about sort of the history of evangelical christians and especially them wading into Republican politics, uh, but first I want to say just a few things about last Wednesday because I, I think it it is important to name a few things. When I, I was outraged when I flipped on the news and I saw what was happening uh, Wednesday afternoon on January six, I imagine many of you were as well. You know, whatever your beliefs, wherever you're coming from, a lot of us. You know, we were angry, we were frustrated, we were sad. And I think for me, the the image that was probably the most frustrating was uh, just when I saw the Confederate flag being paraded through our nation's capital. I, I just, it was so deeply wrong. And, you know, I said this to my congregation, but I'll say it to you as well. You know, I'm a pastor, but I'm also a human being. And so I, you know, I, I have these really strong emotions like many of you. And I, and I find that I usually have to just sort of calm myself so that I can speak about things sort of thoughtfully and, and most important for me faithfully. But, but I've been really frustrated. I, I noticed on Wednesday that it kind of, you know, peaked, but it'd been developing for a year and in many cases more than a year. You know, I've been frustrated, you know, the way in which the truth has consistently been minimized and relativized. That ought to matter to us as Christians. I, I've been frustrated by political leaders who, you know, have, have touted racism and xenophobia and hatred and divisiveness and lying. And, and this has become so acceptable, this language. And it's not championed just by sort of fringe voices, but by our president and other political leaders. And whatever you policy opinions like as as Christians th- this should this should outrage all of us i've been frustrated because as a pastor i look around and it seems like character just no longer seems to matter in the people that we choose to lead us you know we only care if their policies match ours I mean, as a pastor who every week stands up and, and speaks to kind of the, the kind of people God wants us to be, it frustrates me that, that character seems to matter so little on the national stage. I'm frustrated that in so many ways Christians I know have put political ideology ahead of their Christian commitment And a lot of what is happening right now has been supported and enabled over the years by the church. And and I just think it's wrong. As a pastor, I want to say that it's wrong. And I think it's really important that we have some Christian leaders that point to a different way. Because this way in which American Christianity has gotten so tied up in partisan politics, I think, has really given a lot of Christians a bad name. But you know, I don't want to stay outraged. I don't want to stay mad. And so, when I get mad, I try to return to you know things that are hopeful. and And I'm reminded. I was reminded last week of two scriptures that came to mind. But one's from the Gospel of John, chapter eight, and it says, "You know, the truth will set you free." Jesus said this. And so, I think I do think it's important that that we're willing as Christians to name what is true, especially what is wrong. That's why I wanted to start the show this way. But but also in the letter of John, first John chapter four, it says perfect love casts out all fear. And that scripture always reminds me that in a world that wants to, the benefits from that's incentivized to, to make you scared, to get you fearful, to get you riled up that as Christians, we're supposed to return to love and we're supposed to return fear and hatred with love. We're supposed to return darkness with light. We're supposed to return despair with hope. And, That's what I want to be about as a Christian, as a pastor. That's what I want the show to be about. And that might sound weird, but I really am hopeful. You know, I mean, I look around and I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for our country that our institutions bend, but they didn't break. I'm hopeful because, you know, for the first time, did you notice for the first time in a long time, there were Republicans and Democrats actually agreeing like people I never thought would stand together. They did and and they were agreeing, calling out uh, what was wrong. I'm, I'm hopeful that there are so many leaders and Christian leaders who are, are trying to to speak in a different way, to, to stand for something different from the divisiveness and, and the hatred that we so often see. And so I, I think that's important. But today I really am eager to talk about Christian involvement in politics more broadly. I, I do think this is worth us exploring how it's led us to this point and how it's perhaps changing or how it ought to change. And so after the break, my guest for the remainder of the show will be Dr. Marie Griffith at the the John Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. We are going to ask her all these questions. She is a specialist in these matters. But first, uh, before we get to that, we're gonna take a break. You're listening to the Big 550 KTRS.
1: The gathering is creating a Christian community that is compelling for new generations of people, all people, the hope for you as part of this community is that you will not only belong, but become who you are meant to be and believe in the power of faith. You can find out more at gatheringnow.org. At the gathering, when we say churches for everyone, we mean it. No matter who you are or where you've been, we invite you to come meet new people and explore your faith. You will be welcomed and feel connected to a community of people who seek truth, are generous, and invested in helping others. You will learn to be present in your life, grow in your faith, and ultimately believe in something bigger than yourself. You can experience all this and more at the gathering. Simply visit gatheringnow.org and join us weekly for worship, both live and on demand. It's the best first step you can take to learn more about our church. Again, you can find all the information on how to connect by visiting gatheringnow.org. We have multiple services on Sunday, and you can also catch us on demand anytime throughout the week. Remember, at the gathering, there is something for everyone. We hope you'll join us soon.
0: Well, welcome back to The F Word, Conversations on Faith. I'm your host, Pastor Matt Miofsky, and I'm really excited to be joined today by Dr. Marie Griffith. Uh, Dr. Griffith is the director of the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University right here in St. Louis, where she is also a distinguished professor in the humanities. Her work really focuses on politics and American evangelical Christians, and especially on conflicts over gender and marriage and sexuality. Dr. Griffith, it's really great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me.
2: I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Matt.
0: I said this before, but I'm really jealous because I... I went to WashU as an undergrad and there was nothing like this there. And if there was, I think this would have been, I would have majored in something like this. Instead, I ended up in, you know, theoretical math over in the math department. But otherwise I would have been at the center on religion and politics. Can you tell people just really quickly, what is the center on religion and politics?
2: Sure. Yeah. So we just had our 10th anniversary. So yes. Missed you when you were a student there, but we've had 10 good years. And we're um, both a a research center, a teaching center, and also a center really for public education and understanding of the role religion has played in U.S. politics from the very beginning into the present. Um, We're not advocating anything, we're not advocating any particular religion or political viewpoint. We really try to cover everything, but you know, I think traditionally there hasn't been great understanding of why religion has been so important in American life and, and been so influential in American politics. And so we were created to kind of fill that void. And we've got eight faculty members now. All of us are active scholars but also uh, love classroom teaching and you know work a lot with the students at you as well as hosting public events and that kind of thing. And everything is streamed, so even your listeners from far away, if anyone's interested, uh, we, we videotape everything and live stream it and uh, have a really great program of events.
0: That's awesome. I will say something about that at the end. Uh, and I have I have so many questions based on what you just said, but I want to start just for a second with you because, you know, you always hear that joke, the – you know, you're not supposed to talk about two things in polite company, religion and politics, and yet you're a professor of both of these things. How did you get into this? What led you to this kind of work? Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Oh, sure. Well, uh, let's see. I am from a, a, a sort of an interesting background, a kind of mixed background, I guess. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and was raised Southern Baptist. In the 1970s and 80s, and some of your listeners will know that that was the era in which there was an enormous conflict between uh, fundamentalists and folks who called themselves moderates, but were really more on the liberal side. I like to say Mm -hmm. the Jimmy Carter type of Southern Baptist, uh, more interested in social justice and caring for the poor uh, and, and tending towards more liberal politics. There was this uh, massive conflict, and and my church, I felt it very strongly. My mother was on the church staff as a secretary and cared deeply about this heritage, so I sort of grew up um, under this shadow of of that kind of conflict, and I I definitely think that shaped my interest. I, I just saw the importance of religion and, frankly, the politicization of religion, from a very early age. And, of course, Chattanooga was also just sort of right in the middle of the Bible Belt. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot that was far more fundamentalist than my church, but a lot that was that was much more liberal. So I always found these issues really fascinating. Um, gender politics were at the heart of that Southern Baptist conflict, and uh, I saw that, too, from a young age. And, and because my mother was both a devout Southern Baptist and a feminist, a very active feminist, Um, Those identities never seemed to be in conflict to me, but within the denomination as a whole, they were seen as as really incompatible. So that got me started, and I studied other things. I studied political thought, actually, in college and tried to get away from religion, but I couldn't, and so went on and got my Ph.D. in religious studies, and— than you know, have written about religion and politics for my really whole career since then. Uh,
0: I love though that the the roots were real for you. Uh, I, I want to get to that, the kind of the, the political, the increasingly political nature of Christianity, especially during this time that you described, the seventies and eighties, but I want to start with I guess the big question, an overarching question that I've been getting asked a lot, and and it's really this. I mean, um, So many people look at Christians, especially evangelical Christians, and and wonder, how can it be that so many Christians seem to support, right now, a president that seems, I don't know how to put this, so unchristian? Like, how is that? What's going on here?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a long history to this, of course, and I'm happy to go into as much or as little detail as you want, but I think looking at what we see now, you know, the I think the most basic explanation now seems to be that a lot of conservative Christians have been taught and have come to believe that uh, God has called Donald Trump for this moment. And and for that reason, they can sort of say, well, I, I don't approve of his sexual behavior. I don't approve of a lot of things that he does. But God has called him, and God calls imperfect people. You know, we know yeah. this. And so it's it's not up to me. And, you know, he's on the right side when it comes to, for instance, abortion in, in, their, in folks' view, and that's been a critical issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, But I think on a lot of other issues, too, I think on economic issues and issues pertaining to welfare state and, you know, lots of different kinds of issues. I think that many Christians have seen him embodying their policy vision, um, even if there's little to no evidence whatsoever that he's really been a person of faith, you know, an active churchgoer um, at any point in his in his life.
0: Yeah, I, I want to come back to this point because I I kind of hear in what you're saying that they've chosen as policies over the person that they they become less interested in the kind of person that they're voting for, and more interested in the policies that that person promotes. But before I get to that, I, I mean, we I think that this whole uh, question has a history, as you indicated, and. Um, Evangelical Christians. This isn't the first time they've, you know, gotten behind uh, a candidate or a Republican candidate. This relationship between evangelical Christians and the Republican Party kind of has a history. Can you tell us a little bit about how this relationship started? When did evangelicals mm-hmm. begin getting so political or so partisan? Uh, will you mm-hmm. share with folks a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's complicated. Because, you know, at one point in time, I think you would have found evangelicals all over the political spectrum. You know, going back to the 1950s, 1960s, even much of the 1970s, you know, you, you really did have evangelicals who, you know, saw different things in, in across the policy divide, and, and, and there was just a range of views. I think the church that I grew up in, I would absolutely say, uh, was very politically diverse, and... Politics, as you started with, Matt, you know, people kind of saw it as an impolite topic to bring up. And so you sort of avoided it in a lot of settings, at least in the South, Mm -hmm. you know, where I was raised. Um, But uh, you just knew from the people you didn't know, you knew that there was a wide range of views. And that really started changing in the 1970s. And, um, you know, it really, as much as anything, changed on gender politics. Um, 1973 is the year that Rosie Wade was decided. And at that time, actually, uh, the vast majority of white evangelicals favored the Roe v. Wade decision. There had been a great deal of support for some degree of abortion access and abortion reform. Um, but as we know, that changed dramatically over the, the course of the, of the 70s. And really, the evangelical position, I like to say it became Catholicized. Uh, where evangelicals many evangelicals came to a position that abortion was murder <clears throat> which had not been their position at all prior to 1973 um, but they kind of learned about and took on the Catholic position which had been more consistently that mm-hmm. that abortion was murder so it, it's really an era that you see evangelicals and um, and the Republican party becoming very very closely along through the work of like Jerry Falwell and Silas Schlafly and and others, um, and by 1980, of course, the, the landslide uh, election that favored Ronald Reagan, um, you know, was really in, in in large part due to evangelicals, and and they've been tied together ever since.
0: Yeah, which ironically, uh, they you know they supported and worked against arguably the one of the most Christian you know presidents in Jimmy Carter that we've had in modern times, which began this this sort of relationship. Can you talk? I mean, it sounds to me like somewhere along the line in the 70s, you know, Christians weren't content to try to change things from the outside or be commentators on what was happening, but decided at some point that getting involved in partisan politics was the best way that they could live out uh, their vision for the United States or best way to affect change. Is that true?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's partially true. Um, evangelicals cared about one political issue a lot uh, going back to the 1950s and that was anti-communism. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy Graham, one of the, the classic, you know, major, um, evangelists of the 20th century, uh, preached a lot against, uh, communism. And, and evangelicals, you know, that was a political issue, which they also saw as a religious issue, because if communism was was atheist, you know, it was, it was anti-Christian, anti-God. Um, but of course, Democrats and Republicans all were anti-communist at the time. And so you could be a good Democrat, uh, a Christian, and still be strongly anti-communist. So it didn't necessarily divide people's politics in the same way. Um, that really did happen more in the 70s. And Just to go back to something you said, which I think is really important, Jimmy Carter, who was elected in 1976, he was the first president to come as a born-again Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, He was very open about his evangelicalism. He taught Sunday school every week uh, in his hometown of Plains, Georgia, and Uh, was very overt, and and frankly, the national media didn't know what to do with him. They treated him as this sort of exotic, foreign creature uh, that they, you know, didn't understand. Um, And so evangelicals in the country were very proud of that, and many of them rallied around uh, Jimmy Carter. Um, He himself was Southern Baptist and, and, you know, really got a, a privileged vote in 1976. Uh, but then policy wise I think his version of Christianity turned out to be so different
1: yeah. than
2: a lot of evangelicals um, for him Jesus and the beatitudes are the core of the faith and caring for others was the core of the faith and that led him to very you know progressive policies around welfare and, mm-hmm. and finances and, and government and, and really, and, he uh, was
0: I mean he seemed to sort of mirror the uh, that kind of debate within the Southern Baptist church that you were talking about, he brought that, I mean, in a, in a way that was playing out politically as well. Right. That's right. That's right.
2: He was more of a social gospel, uh, Christian. You know, we, uh, the social gospel has been an important movement at different moments in US history and really says, you know, the gospel teaches us that we, that, you know, it's our calling to care for others and government needs, to be caring for others. Um, And, of course, conservatives often see some of that as being socialist. Uh, That's been the critique of that. But Carter embodied that, and so evangelicals turned against him. And many who had voted for him in 1976, you know, eagerly uh, shifted over to Ronald Reagan by 1980.
0: That, that brings up a, a question I want to ask. I, I have to say I'm, parci- I, I'm partial to Jimmy Carter, Not I, I don't say that as a political statement, but I went to graduate school at Emory University where the Carter Center mm-hmm. is, and mm-hmm. j- it was like a field trip, a must field trip for us to travel down to Plains, Georgia, and attend his Sunday school class, which you could do because he still taught it. Well, I was there in 99, 2002, so... Um, I, I can testify to the fact that his, uh, his commitment to that was real. But it, it reminds me of a question. As you talk about him and evangelical Christians, when we use that word evangelical, what does that mean exactly? Because a lot of people might not understand the distinction.
2: Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. You know, it has so many meanings, it almost doesn't mean anything yeah. anymore. You know, the classic definition of an evangelical is simply someone who believes in that jesus died for their sins and that to believe in him is uh to earn salvation and and jesus is the is the true way christianity is the true faith and the bible is the word of god it's, it's it's really simple it's you know kind of what i was taught was just basic christianity um but evangelicals maybe more than other protestants have tended to evangelize have tended to feel they should spread the word and convert others that that has always distinguished evangelicals yeah. today though It it feels very, very different. Uh, Today, the term evangelical really has much more of a political valence. Um, It's really come to mean something, particularly in the Trump era, uh, that's been exemplified by Robert Jeffress and some of Trump's inner circle of evangelical advisors. And um, it it has meant much more Christians who are uh, hyper-conservative on gender issues and sexuality issues Uh, do not allow women to uh, serve in leadership positions in the church, um, and really hold extremely conservative positions when it comes to government and and government funding and a a whole panoply of issues. So, you know, those aren't theological, actually. Uh, It's really come to mean something very different from from most theological definitions. So it's a complicated term, and I think people use it in different ways.
0: Right, right. uh Well— Talk a little bit. You mentioned abortion being such a defining issue, the top, if not maybe the only issue that seems to drive so much of evangelical voting patterns. And can you talk about why a little bit more uh, and maybe a little bit more broadly to extent to which this one issue, abortion, has shaped the relationship between evangelical Christians and the Republican Party?
2: Yeah, it's 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 a really critical uh, point. Um, you know, abortion, as I said, at one point in time, the vast majority of Americans, frankly, including lay Catholics, uh, favored some degree of abortion access. So, for instance, they they felt that abortion should be available to women in certain situations, maybe not all situations. But, you know, early in the first trimester, first six to eight weeks of pregnancy, it really didn't seem like it was that big of a deal to most Americans if a pregnancy was terminated beyond that, you know, it's, it's people had different views of this. Okay. Well, at what point does this really start becoming a baby that, you know, it's, it's, it, it feels very different uh, to to terminate. people had different points of view, but in the mid seventies, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, though a lot of religious leaders began preaching, no, 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 you know, the moment that the sperm and the egg are fertilized, that is a human person whose life is every bit as precious as was or mine. And so there is no time, uh, even very, very early in pregnancy, when abortion is, is okay. And, you know, this has really split the country, as we know, because if you believe abortion is murder from the very beginning, you know... There, there, there's no middle ground there. I mean, you are really going to see it as your duty uh, to protect that embryonic life at the, at the very earliest stage. And if you're on the other side of that and, and think that that's absolutely not true, or for many pro-choice people see that as ridiculous and sort of mock that position, uh, you're not going to have much tolerance um, for the pro-life side. And, Actually, one thing I'm trying to do in current work I'm doing is to bridge that divide and to try and get people to understand each other better across these divides. That people of, of goodwill <laughs> stand on all sides of that issue, and and we have terrible conversations and conflicts over that without really pausing to understand, you know, the viewpoints on either side. Yeah. But um, you know, cynically, I think a lot of political leaders uh, realize this early on, and you know, a lot of Republican um, kind of, uh, I don't know, kingmakers weaponized abortion in this way and really persuaded a lot of people. There was only one Christian way to look at abortion. Yeah. And, uh, and only and one party kind of
0: that would, mm-hmm. that would stand up uh, for over. Yes. And it, that perhaps. anyone,
2: yes. And that anyone who disagreed with that, it was evil. They weren't just wrong, but they were evil. Uh, yeah. You know, so there's been this demonization of the other side. Uh, so it's, I think it's just had some of the worst political effects of any issue uh, in our recent history.
0: Talk a little bit uh, about how this relationship has maybe changed in, you know, the three or four decades since the roots of of it, of the Alliance in the seventies. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. How has the relationship between evangelical Christianity and partisan politics of the Republican Party changed over the years?
2: Sure. Well, you know, Graham was sort of the first evangelical to become um, a really important, uh, I would have to say, prop um, for Republican leaders, especially, although Democratic presidents worked with him, too. So, you know, there's some famous images of Graham with Richard Nixon. And I think Richard Nixon, I mean, he really didn't have a religious bone in his body. I think it was very cynical on his part, you know, wanting Graham's approval so that he could get all the voters who admired uh, Graham. Um, And I think Reagan had some cynicism about it, too, although Reagan uh, had a a bit more of the churchgoer in him than than Nixon did. Um, But, you know, those earlier presidents oftentimes seem to look down on evangelicals, really. And it was kind of a wink, wink. Uh, And figured that out um, in the early Reagan years. And and I think really um, saw that they had power and they went to some of these leaders and said, look, you can't just treat us, you know, like uh, we're hayseeds. You know, you need us, we need you, and, you know, let's work together. And so they, they really became, I think, far more strategic partners um, with some of these leaders. So George W. Bush, of course, himself was, uh, a self-identified evangelical, and um, evangelicals had tremendous access uh, to him and to many of his staff members. He employed many evangelicals, like Michael Gerson, the mm-hmm. speechwriter, and others. So um, the, the, so the, there's been icy relationships at times, and, and then other times warmth and tremendous trust, uh, but they've trusted no president more than they have Donald Trump, which you know, I think a lot of other Christians find ironic because they find Trump the least <laughs> trustworthy president in our history. Yeah. Um, so
0: I, I've often done this thought experiment and maybe you can help me with it. It, it. It's sort of a, who's the, who's the dog and who's the tail wagging the dog. It seems like <laughs> early on you said there were sort of these Republican kingmakers who saw evangelical Christians abortion is an issue to weaponize evangelical Christians is a coalition that they could win over, uh, to essentially as part of a larger strategy to, you know, they saw changes in the South and, you know, they were going to have to get new people to vote for them. And, and, but over time, I I wonder, is it still that, or is it the evangelical Christians who are in charge and the Republicans kind of have to do what, what they say? How do you analyze that? I mean, uh, It seems like the power dynamic has shifted over time.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that uh, Republicans came to rely very heavily on evangelicals to get out the vote, and and the evangelicals who realized they were that powerful could sort of hold that power over their head and say, we're not going to get our people out unless you do this, this, and this. And uh, a lot of them really pushed the Republican Party into a far more conservative uh, posture than they, than they had. You know, we started this conversation talking about uh, the center and John C. Danforth, uh, the Missouri senator, is our namesake and our benefactor. And Danforth himself has really lamented what he sees as the takeover of the Republican Party by, um, you know, not not just by Christians, he's a Christian himself, but by a certain far-right element uh, within American uh, evangelical Christianity. Um, And so he would absolutely see it the way you just described it, that, um, you know, evangelicals really came to kind of rule uh, their leaders and um, in in ways that have had very unfortunate effects.
0: Yeah. So like any other group, you know, evangelicals, we're talking about them all together, but they're not a monolith. Are there changes or fissures that are developing within the politics of evangelical Christians? And maybe specifically, I mean, is is this changing with younger generations? I'm curious if if there's signs of change.
2: Yes, I'm, I'm very glad you asked that, because I do think it's really important to remember that evangelicals are actually a very diverse group. Um, I think the ones that are sometimes most motivated politically tend to be in, in this category we're describing of very conservative, you know, very vocal, very, you know, very loud, very active at the polls. But there are far uh, more evangelicals too who are, you know, religiously, I'm sorry, politically more moderate or even politically liberal. Uh, there is a religious left that includes um, many evangelical Christians. You know, as well. So, uh, there's definitely not a monolith, and I think younger generations um, we we see in in we see in polls over and over. Younger generations tend to care about uh, climate change, for instance, and a range of different issues. Yeah. They uh, are much less concerned about women's leadership in the church, for instance. Um, this just doesn't seem a big deal. They're much more open to movements for racial justice. Um, they see that as a really critically important issue. And so, you know, Black Lives Matter, they're, they're not nearly so critical of that as maybe their parents and grandparents have been uh, in the evangelical community. So I do think things are really shifting. And, you know, I think the fallout from the Trump administration is going to be interesting to watch. You know, what happens to evangelicals um, in, in the wake of everything as we transition into a Biden
0: administration. Yeah, I I ask that somewhat selfishly. I I often am personally described as a progressive evangelical, which Mm -hmm. I accept the, you know, I I accept the label, but I'll get phone calls from or emails from other evangelical pastors or, or leaders, you know, sort of secretly telling me, you know, Matt, we can't say this in our church, but we're really starting to change our mind about LGBTQ inclusion in the church. Or um, I really Mm -hmm. wish my church would get on board with climate change, would understand that that's a real issue or, uh, hey, economic justice or racial justice is something that my church just won't talk about. And so I, I see it kind of underneath the surface It's happening, especially with younger evangelical leaders and pastors who are really beginning to call into question some of the stuff that was just assumed to be rock solid uh, in in the churches that they grew up in. uh, That's
2: so interesting. I I mean, I, I believe that. I think younger generations, the pollsters tell us younger generations, do not understand why their elders have been so obsessed with homosexuality, yeah, <laughs> you know, every younger evangelical has a gay person in their family or friend. A good, it's just normalized for younger generations. It, and so, I, I agree with you. That's one of the big issues that I think the younger I, evangelicals differ from their from the elders.
0: It, it's incredible because I uh, I people may not know this about me who are listening, but uh, you know, the gathering, the church I serve, and and I've always. I've always believed that LGBTQ uh, people should be fully welcomed into the life of the church at all leadership levels, and that's the kind of church The Gathering is. And this sermon I preached, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, just where I walked through the texts in the Bible that are used to kind of condemn uh, gay and lesbian people. I mean, it was like a 47-minute sermon where I was sitting down, and it's by far— been viewed more than any other sermon I've ever preached. I always laugh because in Mm. some ways it was the longest, most boring, you know, sermon. (laughs) And yet uh, this is just, uh, is such a, a divisive issue. But I wanted to, you mentioned a little bit that not only are evangelical Christians diverse and starting to change, but that there are also other kinds of Christians that don't describe themselves as evangelical necessarily. So is there any, I, I kind of ask this tongue-in-cheek. Are there any Christians that aren't Republican? I mean, I think a lot of non, you know <laughs> non-Christians wonder, like, are any Christians not Republican? But kind of in other words, is there anything similar to this happening in the Democratic Party or on the left?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Well, one thing to say, let's talk about Catholics for one moment, because, you know, Catholics are fascinating on this. Catholics are very divided politically. Um, we often... Think of Catholics as being Republican because of the abortion issue and because the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops right now has been extremely conservative and, and really quite pro-Trump. You've got uh, a lot of leaders who have been openly friendly uh, to Trump and been, been unusually political, I think, in the, in their speech. But if you look at ordinary Catholics on the ground, uh, there are very large numbers of Catholics who are Democrats. And, and I and I mean faithful Catholics. I don't just mean, you know. Including
0: half- Joe Biden, right?
2: <laughs> including Joe <laughs> Biden. Okay, so yeah, let's think of them as Joe Biden Catholics, who again are motivated in part by a certain vision of the social gospel. Um, they may not uh, love abortion or believe in it them, themselves, but they also would see that democratic policies have actually driven down the abortion rate in, in many cases. And so, you know, Making abortion illegal is not the only way to, to drive down the abortion rate. If you really want to reduce the abortion rate, you know, there are policy uh, solutions that can help you with that. And, and I think that's how a lot of Catholics themselves on the ground uh, think about it. So, yes, there are many devoutly uh, Christian Catholic uh, Democrats, but th- there are Protestants, too. So, you know, what we used to call the mainline uh, Protestants, they are still out there. Uh, their churches have gotten smaller in many cases. Uh, which is one reason everyone loves your church, Matt, because you've done such an amazing job. You know, kind of in a mainline tradition of creating this dynamic uh, congregation that everybody wants to go to. And I, I think there are other examples of that in other in, in the other denominations too. Um, so those are uh, you know great examples there. But there there are lots of Christian uh, Democrats out there, and um, and I think they feel somewhat appalled. That, um, that that on the far right conservative side, people have been persuaded that the only Christian political party is Republican. Uh, you know, there's just that that view people have been taught uh, from birth in, in many cases and right here in the state of Missouri. I can think about that. And you know it's simply not there there's a
0: there's an old quote by Tony Campolo that, I'll use every once in a while, he said, you know, mixing religion and politics is like mixing ice cream and manure. It doesn't do much to the manure, but it sure does ruin the ice cream. Uh, And I'm curious how you would, yeah, how would you diagnose the impact on evangelical Christianity, getting so involved in politics? What's it done? We talked about kind of what it's done to the Republican party. What has it done to, uh, evangelical Christianity in America.
2: Well, yeah. And, and, you know, this is a concern that really goes back to the founding fathers, um, you know, who were very, of course, folks like Thomas Jefferson were very keen on separating church and state and and keeping them apart. And it was partly to protect the government from overly religious influence, but a lot of it, the impulse even for Jefferson was in part to protect religion from from the state and from government overtaking religion and distorting and corrupting uh, religion. So I I absolutely think that uh, there's there's been a lot of that. And, you know, every once in a while, there's a reckoning about that. Uh, You know, my my guess is post-Trump years, there will be a kind of reckoning of that, because I think uh, many evangelicals, especially— watching the recent uh, insurrection at the Capitol um, are going to feel like, you know, that is not uh, what our faith teaches us. And there were a lot of folks sporting Christian signs and, and clothing and images there. And if something is wrong, you know, something has been corrupted here and we've let that happen. Um, so I, I do think, you know, letting religion get completely co-opted by political ideas that have nothing to do with anything that Jesus taught, uh, has been uh, devastating and and demoralizing. And, uh, you know, there, I guess I speak more as a Christian than as a scholar, but, uh, you know, you you really do see it. I mean, for those of us who were taught that the core of Christianity uh, is Jesus' teachings, um, you know, it's hard to understand how so much energy has been spent on, on on so many other issues and how you, you've been treated as if you're not a true Christian, if you care about the poor, it's, or if you, you know, and so I, I think that corruption you're describing has been really real. It's, I, I,
0: you know, I, again, I ask it with a bias because I've seen it in my church. I mean, we talk about abortion, uh, maybe s- sexuality and, and the big issues that get a lot of attention. But, you know, one effect I've seen and it just sat, deeply saddens me is a political identity, you know, real, not not to use a pun, but Trump's uh, Christian identity so much so that Christians will get mad at me sometimes when I say things that I think are just sort of uncontroversially Christian, like um, Jesus probably wouldn't carry a handgun and advocate, you know, for, uh, you know, more weapons or or or. Uh, you know, reading lines out of the scripture that say, at least as Christians, we're supposed to have a certain disposition for immigrants and uh, strangers mm-hmm. in the land. And suddenly this stuff is heard purely in political terms. So if I, you know, share a message about loving your enemies or or talk about how we ought to um, how we ought to treat the, the stranger or the immigrant in our midst uh, to them, it sounds political when uh, that actually isn't the intention. But uh, mm-hmm. so there's more issues, right, than just abortion. I mean, we're not just talking about abortion or LGBTQ inclusion. There's a range of, of things that have become politicized within the church as well.
2: Absolutely. I, no, and I, I hear you because it, it seems to me, you know, Christians, if nothing else, they're about loving others and, and really reducing suffering in the world, you know, at, at its core. Uh, that that certainly seems to be what Jesus was all about, um, and and so we can disagree on the best ways for doing that. But you know, I, I don't see how you criticize someone else for caring about immigrants as if that's sort of a you know such a politicized position. That that is sort of what we've come to now.
0: So I. I looked up, you know, in preparation, and I saw that you're working on a book, if I have it correct, or maybe you're done with it, Making the World Better, Some Historical Lessons for a Fractured Nation. Mm -hmm. Is that that the title of this book? And if it Mm -hmm. is, you have to give us a sneak peek. Um, What are some words of hope? I mean, this sounds like you might have, uh, what are some historical maybe uh, reasons to hope that the divisiveness that we see right now, or that many of us, you know, experience right now, you know, can change.
2: Yeah. Yes, I am working on this. And, you know, at the last minute, I changed the title from making the world better to making the world over, which comes from a quote uh, from James Baldwin, the, the, the great uh, intellectual and activist of the 20th century who said, you know, we made the world we live in and we have to make it over. And, you know, he meant that just kind of from the bottom up. And, and so the book kind of takes that and, and, and really examines the way that we have told ourselves Americans have a, a distorted version of our history. You know, we have so badly wanted to believe in American exceptionalism and that we are the greatest nation to have ever existed in the history of the world um, that we haven't been Comfortable looking at our shortcomings and our flaws, and the violence uh, that's up to this nation, and so it's really a reckoning with trying to uh, grapple with racism and with white supremacist ideology, and and with our nation's very conflicted um, treatment of immigrants and foreigners, and and uh, haven't always welcomed the stranger as as we've said we would. And also misogyny. I've written a great deal about misogyny and, and the treatment of women who haven't uh, occupied traditional feminine roles in, in the way that they've uh, sort of been seen to do. And, and it, it, you know, really, ultimately, my point there is that if we can tell ourselves truer histories, um, we won't fall apart. We will continue to love our country and love one another. And, and we can actually do that better if, if we're doing that with a full and truthful view of ourselves, instead of resisting, um, the imperfections. I mean, it's, it's, you know, so that's, that's really what I'm trying to do. My, my way of feeling hopeful is to say so many people, we all want to be better. We're all concerned about our fractiousness. Now people across the left and the right, uh, are concerned and want there to be more caring and more unity and, um, you know, better ways of, of approaching one another. So the very fact that we all seem to want that now, I think, means there's real energy towards towards getting there. So the book is my small attempt, I think, at trying to provide hope and, and strategies, you know, for being able to do that better and have better conversations across uh, conflicted issues and, and um, you know, find a way forward.
0: It's such an important, it's such an important uh, piece of work. I I said last week from the pulpit, I said, yeah, one of the more hopeful things I've seen in a while is in in the wake of the insurrection at the Capitol for the first time in a long time, I felt like I saw Republicans and Democrats, people I never thought would be on the same side of anything actually agree on something that that was wrong and that that's not who we are certainly as Christians or as Americans. Um, So I want to end going back to something more uh, maybe autobiographical. So you've you've spent a lot of time studying this. You said you grew up in a Southern Baptist church. You grew up with sort of a a politically active family. Has studying all of this, the way that you have, has it made you more or less Christian and more or less political in your own
2: life? Wow. Wow. I thought you were going to ask me if it had made me more or less cynical or more or less hopeful. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think in terms of Christian, I, I've never felt, I guess because I grew up with a very strong sense of the priesthood of all believers uh, as a Baptist um, and, and the sense that, you know, I had gotten a great foundation in what true Christianity was. And it was at the core caring for others and, and, um, you know, visiting the stranger and, and, and healing suffering where I could and and showing love. And so I've never really departed from that or felt that my Christianity was inadequate because someone else said it was. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it, it certainly hasn't made me less uh, faithful. It's made me probably more aware of the power plays that happen in churches, but Heck, growing up Southern Baptist in the seventies and eighties, I, I saw all that at the time. That was pretty obvious.
0: You had a front row seat. So, yeah.
2: um, in terms of my politics, um, you know, I I uh, I really regret, um, and I, and I see this in the in the Democrats and the people with whom I, I feel somewhat politically aligned. I, I do regret what I see as a, a lot of self righteousness and mockery of others who think differently. And. And I understand where the anger comes from, and, and I often feel that anger myself. But, you know, I, I do not agree oftentimes with what I see as the strategies a lot of political actors put forward, uh, in, including feminists, with whom I'm, again, quite aligned. Um, and I'd like there to be a lot more conversation and a lot more good faith attempts to uh, work together and hear each other and argue in a civil way and try to collaborate and cooperate. And maybe I'm a little more cynical about that now because it feels like we've we've lived through a really tough, you know, not just the last four years, really, the last, you know, 25 years, maybe the last 50 years of conflict and, and bad faith uh, weaponizing of religion and, and other things. So it's, it's hard to trust anyone on the other side anymore. I, I realize that. But um, to me, the effort to do that is great and and really worth it. And that's one reason I'm so passionate about my job at this center and in trying to work with students and the broader public, you know, to, to have better conversations and, and better ways of living together as a society.
0: Uh, it's so important. Uh, and, and what you said reminds me that, that maybe, you know, there is still work for Christians to do. Uh, on both sides of the aisle when it comes to not so much what policies we're trying to pass, but sort of how we how we carry ourselves as leaders and maybe we still have a testimony to offer there. I, you know one of the things that I am so saddened by, and this is sort of where our conversation started. so maybe it's fitting that as we're closing out, uh, is that, Christians in the political realm have put policies uh, so far ahead of of people. In other words, we we sort of disregard the kind of person someone is as long as they have policies that we agree with. And maybe it can be a return to character mattering again on both sides Mm -hmm. of the aisle that maybe Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at Scripture, arguably, you know, who we are is as important or more important than what we believe or uh, what position Mm -hmm. we have and uh one of my hopes is that our political leadership would uh, recover a sense that character actually does matter uh and mm-hmm. and uh how we carry ourselves and who we are matters as much as uh, what policies we're putting forth but
2: oh to that i say amen i i could not agree with you more
0: well Dr. Griffith, thank you so much for spending so much time with me. This conversation has been wonderful, and I, I know that I know that it's a gift to those who will listen to it. And I want to say, sometime I want to have you back. I didn't go here because it would have opened up a whole new. I want to have you back sometimes t- just to talk about women and leadership in the church. And mm, I'm going to ask uh-huh. you a question. You don't have to answer it because we'll save it for next time. But one of the things that continues to baffle me is in the world on both sides of the aisle women are now in leadership in politics in business and uh in, in all sorts of different areas of our of our world and yet there is still uh you know there's still this sort of comfort with women having second class status in so many of our churches and it's yeah. almost like we have moved past it we don't even talk about that anymore so sometime i want to have you back we will talk about that but for today, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate it.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me. And I look forward to that conversation
0: about women. That would be great. And thank you all again for listening. This has been the F Word Conversations on Faith. Again, I'm your host, Pastor Matt Miofsky. Don't forget, you can email me at the Word at gatheringnow.org. I'll start answering some of your questions. But until then, have a great day and I'll see you next week.